You're listening to a presentation of The Rising, a community of faith, a church designed to see people far from God raised to true life. We're always encouraged to know God is changing lives through this ministry. If you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know and send an email to stories at wearetherising.com. Now, prepare your heart and mind to hear a word from God. Forever, forever. You know, forever, forever God is glorified and forever He sits on the throne. But you know, for us sometimes, wrapping our mind around the concept of forever is difficult. Because you and I, we live a finite life, right? I mean, we're only here for so many years. And then we pass into forever. We enter into eternity. But right here in this life, sometimes this is all we can see. This is, this is all we, we focus on. But, but there's so much more to life than, than just this life. But, but, but I wonder for you, when you think about your life, what do you want to be known for? If somebody were to stand up at your funeral and recount who you were and what you were known for, what would you want them to say about you? You know, as a, as a pastor and, and really just as a person, uh, I've been to several funerals in my life, and uh, funerals can be a, a sad environment, not just because somebody passed away, but I think they're sad sometimes because of what some people are known for. You know, somebody stands up in front of a crowd of people that's gathered there, and they say, oh, Charlie, he was such a great guy. He loved watching football, sitting in his recliner and drinking Bud Light. I mean, how sad is that? Like at the end of your life, one of the things you're known for is that you drank Bud Light. I mean, who drinks Bud Light, right? Man up and make it a Guinness at least. Come on, Charlie, you know? But, but, but I wonder for you, what do you want to be known for? If somebody were to stand up and talk, because that's what a funeral is. A funeral is a ceremony that we have for people where we reminisce about their life and we talk about what they're known for. And what's sad to me so many times is that some people are known for things that don't even matter. Like, I was at this funeral one time, and uh, evidently, this guy's greatest accomplishment, according to his coworker, was that he rewrote a systems manual on how to operate a piece of machinery. And he went on and on about how great this systems manual was. And I'm sure the systems manual was great, but I was sitting in my seat thinking, really? Like, this is this guy's greatest accomplishment? This is what he's known for? For rewriting a systems manual that someone else is going to rewrite one day? Like, he's known for, uh, for rewriting the systems manual for a piece of machinery that one day is going to be outdated and obsolete. Like, this is what he's known for? This is the legacy of his life? I wonder for you, what do you want to be known for? When somebody stands up at your funeral and they recall who you were and what you are known for, what do you want them to say? Back in 2007, there was a movie called The Bucket List. It starred Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. How many of you guys saw the movie? Yeah, all of us, right? Uh, so it was an amazing movie, and, and it centered around these two characters who were dying of terminal lung cancer. And so they decided to make this list of all the things that they wanted to accomplish in their life before they kicked the bucket, their, their bucket list before they died. And so they made this list, and some of the things on their list were things like this. They said that they wanted to see the pyramids. They wanted to go skydiving, get a tattoo, see Rome, and laugh until they cried. And, and this was a great movie. It was a movie that really sparked a movement in our society and culture because people dis discovered that life is so short and there's so many things to accomplish in this life. And so people started making their own bucket list. I don't know if you've made a bucket list or not, but, but if you need help with it and you're not quite sure what to accomplish in your life, you can actually visit bucketlist.org and they will give you three and a half million ideas of things that you can do in your life. Uh, some of the things you could write on your bucket list that you could be known for are eating haggis in Scotland. 
going ghost hunting, swimming in a waterfall, carving a pumpkin, petting a penguin, and flying first class on an airplane, all life-defining moments, right? But, but, but these are some of the suggestions on there. But I wonder for you, when somebody stands up at, their, at, at your funeral and they recall all that you were, what do you want to be known for? Because, I mean, a bucket list seems nice, but I think we would want to be known for more than just accomplishing a list of activities. I mean, I, I think we want more than for somebody to stand up and say she kayaked in caves, or he walked the distance of the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, or they lassoed a tornado and had a big blue ox named Babe. I mean, I mean those are great accomplishments, right? It's better than he loved his recliner so much that he left a perfect impression of his body in the cushions. Those are great accomplishments, but I think we want to be known for more than just a list of things that we did. I think at the end of our life, if somebody were to reminisce about who you were, you would want him to say something like this. He was an exemplary husband and father, that she brought joy to everybody she interacted with that they worked with honor and integrity, that they embodied love and grace. Like, we want to be known for things like that. And, and, and I would hope that the people in this room, that the number one thing that you would want somebody to say when they stood up at your funeral is that, is that you would want them to say, they lived for Jesus, and they showed people who Jesus was through how they lived and how they loved. That was, that was their, their, the greatest thing about them, that they introduced people to Jesus. My hope is that we would want for our funerals to be filled with people who would say, the reason why I'm here is because they introduced me to the Savior. And my life was forever changed because of that. And because they showed me Jesus, not only is my life changed, but my eternity, my forever is transformed because I'm going to be in heaven. Like, like, I think this is what you and I want to be known for. But if you really want to know what you'll be known for, all you got to do is look at the things that you put priority in now. Like, look at the things that you're pouring your life into now. Because I think, sadly, for so many of us, we wouldn't be known for those things. I, I think if somebody stood up at many of our funerals and the politeness was taken away, you know, because you only say nice things about people at funerals, if the politeness was taken away and somebody really talked about what we were known for, some people would say about our lives that we love work more than we loved our family because that's what we're living for right now. I think some people would stand up at our funerals and say they, they were busy all the time. They just went, 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 and they allowed their schedule to dictate their life. I mean, if the politeness was taken away and people really recalled what we were known for, I think people might say, you know, they cared more about themselves than, than others. I wonder for you, what do you want to be known for in your life? Because I don't know how central this is to your thinking, um, but there's more to life than just what we see. There's more to life than just what's going on in our own life. There's more to life than just our finite amount of years here on this earth because there's an eternity that lasts forever that we're heading to. And I don't know about you, but I want to be known as somebody who shows people who Jesus is, and as a result of that, their life is transformed forever. And listen, you don't have to be a pastor to do that. You don't have to start a church. You don't have to preach sermons to do that. But you can show Jesus to people by the way that you live and the way that you love and how you talk about what do you want to be known for at the end of your life. Today I want, to, I want to talk to you about how to be known as a person who introduced people to Jesus. And the way that we do that is by having a heart for the house of God. Here's, here's why. Because God has always had this plan that he would make his name famous in the world and in the lives of other people through his house. 
And so what I want to talk to you about today is how to have a heart for the house of God and why it matters that we have a heart for the house. And so to help me uh, preach this, I need to set up the foundation by looking at uh, first, first Chronicles chapter 22, uh, verse 5. First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 5. If you would open up in your Bible there, uh, it's uh, several books into the Old Testament. It's First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 5. We'll have the words for it on the screen as well. But I really believe that if we develop a heart for the house of God, then we will play a part in making a difference in people's lives. Uh, now, as we, as we read this, uh, the central figure who's speaking here is David. Now, King David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. David was described as a man after God's own heart. What that meant is that David cared about the things God cared about. And so if you and I are going to care about the things God cared about, then we should know what David cared about because he cared about the things God cared about. And what we find in this passage is that David had a heart for the house of God. David wanted to build a temple for God, but God said to him, you're not going to build my temple. Instead, your son Solomon is going to build my temple. And this is where 1 Chronicles 22, 5 picks up. Here's what's recorded for us. David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So David made, watch this, extensive preparations before his death. David said, I have a heart for the house. I want to build a temple for God to represent his movement, to represent his people. And God said, David, you're not going to build my temple. Instead, your son Solomon is going to build it. And here's what David says about his son. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's young and inexperienced. And, and, and maybe David is thinking, I don't know if this is a great plan. Because he's young and inexperienced. He doesn't know what he's doing. So here's what David says. Therefore, because he doesn't know what he's doing, and I don't want him to mess it up because the house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations. And if you put it in his hands, it's not going to be. So to help him out, I'm going to make preparations. I'm going to make extensive preparations. I'm going to lay out the plans. I'm going to give him all the, res the resources, the materials he needs to build it so he can't mess this up. Because the house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations. Verse 6, it says, Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. David had a heart for the house of God. Now, before we move on, I need to make sure that we're all on the same page when I start talking about having a heart for the house. Uh, when I talk about having a heart for the house of God, I'm not talking about a physical structure or a place. We see here that David uh, wants to build a physical structure, a place, a temple, but this is not the house of God. The house of God is actually the people. So the house is not the place, but the house is the people. For, for instance, um, the Davis house, my, my, my house, is made up of me, my wife, and our daughter, and our soon-to-be little baby. I don't know if y'all know that, but we're having a baby soon. And uh, yep, it's good. And if you get tired of hearing that, sorry. But, um, but, but, but so, so this is our house. Now, if the Davis house moves, the physical structure stays where it is, but we move. And then we go into a new structure, and that is now our house. Not because of the place, but because of the people who live in the house. When we talk about having a heart for the house, we're talking about the people, not the place. Because the people make up the house. And what we see throughout the scriptures, in, in, in all of history in the Old Testament is that God's plan has always been to make his name famous through a house. 
He wants to let himself be known to the world through a house. We see that God does this in the very beginning with the house of Abraham, the house of Isaac, and the house of Jacob. Now, these weren't physical structures, but these were families that God was using as his representatives. And so he said, Abraham, I'm going to use your house so that when the world sees you, they know who I am. Isaac, the same for you. Jacob, the same for you. Later on, we see that God uses the house of Israel. Now, Israel was actually a nation. It wasn't a physical structure, but it was the people of Israel who were going to be his representatives to the world. Later on, David has this desire to build a temple, a physical structure to represent the house of God, the people of God, but this would be the place that the people could gather, okay? So the temple is not necessarily the house we're talking about. It's not the place, but it's the people. Finally, we see now in our day and age that the church is the house of God. Again, not a structure, not the Norva, not a church building, but the people who make up that house. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will, I will build my church. He says, on this rock, on, on this truth, I will build my church. He didn't say, uh, and when he talks about I'm going to build my church, he's not talking about I'm going to go get some two by fours and nails and build a physical structure, but I'm going to build a movement of people. This is my house. And he says about the, the church, the house of God, that we will advance so forcefully that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. And so you and I are part of a movement that's moving forward. We're not part of a gathering of people who come and sit on a Sunday, but we're part of a movement that takes the gospel message of Jesus out to the world. That's what we're a part of. And so what we see is that the house is not the place, but it's the people. 2 Corinthians 6.16b says this, for we are the temple of the living God. It says that you and I are now the temple. Us as people, we're the house. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so you and I now are the house of God, and it's through his house that God has always desired to make his name famous. Are you with me on the same page? Good. I just want to make sure that uh, you don't think I'm talking about a physical structure. Now, when we talk about having a heart for the house, Here's what we're talking about, having a heart for the church. Uh, and not, not um, having a heart for the church worldwide, because we, we should love the church worldwide. But when we talk about having a heart for the church, having a heart for the house, I'm talking about having a heart for this specific house. Because this is the house that you're a part of. Now, there's nothing wrong with any other churches. We're not in competition. We're all on the same team. We have nothing against other churches because we're in this together. We have the same mission to show people who Jesus is. But if you're going to have a heart for the house, that means that you get planted and rooted in one particular house and you give yourself to the mission and the vision of that house. It doesn't mean that you have a heart for this house and then that house and then those houses over there because then your heart is divided. Like, you care more about your family than you care about other people's families, right? I mean, you care about their families, hopefully, but you care more about your family. Why? Because you're rooted there. That's your house, that, right? And so we talk about having a heart for this house, pouring ourselves fully into the mission and the vision of this church. And, and so what it means to have a heart for the house doesn't mean that I show up uh, when it's convenient, right? When it's, when it, by the way, y'all, y'all got to give yourselves a hand. You got here and it was raining and there's a race going on? Come on. You know you got a heart. You know you got a heart for this house. Because he said, I'm not, letting, I'm not letting Skywater stop me. I'm getting here. But, but, but to have a heart for the house means uh, that you get planted and rooted. It, it doesn't mean that you simply sit and consume, though. To, to have a heart for the house 
means that you get planted and rooted. It, it, it doesn't mean that you go to this one church for six months and then you leave because you got offended. And then you go to this other church for a little while and you leave because they wouldn't let you sing in the band because you can't sing anyway and you shouldn't be singing in the band. And so you leave and then you come to our church and then you talk bad about those churches because we don't do that. We're a church where honor flows up, down, and to the side. And so we never talk bad about any other churches because, again, we're all on the same team. And so, and so what it means to have a heart for the house, though, is to get rooted and planted in a house and to give yourself to that mission and that vision. I, I, I believe that so many of us get frustrated in our faith at times. So, so, some of you have been coming to church for a little bit, and you're wondering, you, you know, we talk about uh, experiencing the power of God and living life to the full, and, and, and I'm not seeing that in my own life. Why is that? I want to suggest to you today that maybe the reason why you're not seeing the power of God unleashed in your life at times is because you're not planted in the house of God. We, we see in Psalm chapter 1, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. Blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night. Watch this, verse 3. They are like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. I want to submit to you this morning that if you want to prosper in your life, then you got to get planted. In your relationship with God, if you want to see some fruit, you got to develop roots. You can't just come and skim the surface, but you got to get planted, develop some roots, and fully give yourself to the house of God, because the house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations, and it takes us being all in to make that happen. Now, David had a heart for the house of God, so much so that he wanted to build a temple to represent the house. God said, you're not going to build it. Your son Solomon is going to build it. And so David made extensive preparations in order to set Solomon up for success because he said that the house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. And so this is not going to be some thrown together ramshackle shack of a house, but this is going to be a magnificent house for God because everyone's going to look to that. And when they look to that, they're going to see our God. You know, that's why we do some of the things that we do as a church. That's why one of our values is we break out the China every time. Like, we pursue excellence in everything we do. Why? Because we have an excellent God. And we want people, when they come and experience God through this church, we want them to see God's excellence by how we reflect it. That's why we practice. That's why we do run-throughs. That's why we have an amazing band. That's why we set things up the way we do. Because what we do as a house reflects God to so many people. Some of you came to church for the first time. Not just um, our church, but a church for the first time. And we realize that what we give you in an experience is a reflection of who God is. So some of you um, got so burned by church or stopped going to church because of your experience in that church. And watch this. The experience you had in that church reflected God to you. God isn't like that broke down, jacked up church that you went to. They just did it wrong. You, you know what I mean? And so... So what we do as a house should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor because what we do is a reflection of God. And I want you to see God through this house. And so David had a desire to build a house for God. God said, no, Solomon is going to build it. And so David makes extensive preparations. He hands it all over to Solomon and Solomon builds it. He finishes building the temple in 959 BC. 
and it stands for about 370 years. And then it's destroyed when the Babylonians come in and they conquer Israel. They ransack the temple, they destroy it, and it lays in ruins for 70 years while the nation of Israel is in exile in the nation of Babylon. Eventually, Persia and King Cyrus take over Babylon, and Cyrus says, you can go back and rebuild this temple. This is where the book of Ezra picks up in 537 BC. And here's why I tell you all that, because I want you to know that you can believe what's in here, not just because that's how you grew up, not just because you were told to believe this, not because it's the right thing. I want you to know that you don't have to blindly believe what's in this book. But what's in here is backed by history. History shows that these events actually took place. And so in 537 BC, the events of Ezra take place. So I want to invite you to open up to Ezra. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 2. If you're in 1 Chronicles, you can turn over to 2 Chronicles, and then Ezra is right after that. So Ezra chapter 1 starting in verse 2. Now, the house of God that, that Solomon built has been laid waste, and it's in ruins for 70 years. And then King Cyrus, the king of Persia, says this uh, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. says, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And so watch this. Cyrus, the king of Persia, who doesn't even worship the God of Israel, develops a heart for the house of God. He says, I have this desire to rebuild this temple, and God has appointed me to do so. So so King Cyrus, who's not even a Jew, has a heart for the house of God. Verse 3, any of his people among you, may their God be with them, and let them go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. In any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. What he's saying is that provision needs to be given for the building of the house of God. Don't you know that it takes provision to build a house? You can't build a house from nothing. It takes provision. He says, so we got to get some provision. Verse 5, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, everybody who had a heart for the house, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. I want to give you two ways that you can know if you have a heart for the house of God. The, The first way is this. Number one, you, you know you have a heart for the house of God because you're playing a part in building it. Because you're playing a part in building it. It says that everyone whose heart God had moved went up and built. Everybody whose heart God didn't move, everybody who didn't have a heart for the house didn't go up and build. And you may say, well, hold on, Pastor. I mean, it said that God moved their heart. Well, well God's desire is that his house would be of great magnificence, fame, and splendor in all the world. And so this really is just a way to say everybody who had a heart for the house went up and built. Everybody who didn't, didn't go and build. Now, the people who stayed and didn't go to build may have had great intentions, right? I mean, let's give give that to them. They probably had some good desires. They wanted to see a magnificent house built. They had well wishes for the house of God to be built, but they didn't go and build. And don't you know that good intentions, great desires, and well wishes don't build a house? You can wish all you want, but until you actually do it, it won't happen. See, the the way that we show our love 
the way that we show what we're passionate about is through our action. Like, if my wife came home one day and I said to her, hey, honey, I really love you so much, and, you know, I thought about getting you some flowers today. Like, I thought about it all day. I had great intentions. I was planning on it. I had good desires. I even wished that I could have got you some flowers, but I just got busy. That might fly once. She might say, oh, honey, thank you so much. I'm so glad you thought about me because it's the thought that counts. That's what you should say every time you don't do something. I thought about it. It's the thought that counts, right? She, she could say, it's the thought that counts. But then if I say, you know what, that, that really worked. I'm going to do that conversation again next week. And she comes home and I say, honey, I really wanted to give you some flowers just like last week, but I didn't. I thought about it. I had well wishes. After a while, she's going to say, do you really love me? Now, getting flowers is not indication of love, but it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a token of that. But after a while, she's going to say, do you really want to get me flowers? I mean, I know you keep talking about it. I know you have the desire. I know you want to, but you got to show it. See, well wishes don't get it done. If you, if you say to your kids, I really love you and I want to spend time with you, I just can't. I really want to come to your recital. I really want to come to your game. I'm going to do it, but, but you never show up. Then your life is going to become a Harry Chapin song. Cats in the cradle in the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you're coming home, son, I don't know when. We'll get together then, yeah. You know we'll have a good time then, yeah. Good intentions, great desires, and well wishes don't get it done. You got to actually do it. You know you have a heart for the house of God because you're playing a part in building it. It's easy to tell if somebody has a heart for this house. You know how I know if they got a heart for this house? Because they're serving. Because they showed up here this morning at 7.50 and set all this up. Because they're serving your kids right now in kids' ministry. Yeah. The, the, man, hold on. I just want to say, for, the, for our volunteers in kids' ministry, I think, I believe, they make the greatest sacrifice out of all of our volunteers. All our volunteers are great. You guys are amazing. But for those who serve in kids' ministry, because every other week they miss out on this worship experience to serve kids who aren't even theirs. <laughs> right? I mean, I'll change, I'll change my baby's diaper, but yours? I don't know about that. Right? But they, and so... And I, I've seen some of y'all's kids. So, uh, but, 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 but I, know, I know who has a heart for the house because they give. I know who has a heart for this house because they bring people. Because they're saying, you got to come and experience what God is doing in my life, and I just want you to experience it too. I, I know who has a heart for the house because they've taken ownership of this church. They're engaging in the four Gs. I, I know who has a heart for this house because their language has changed from, Pastor, what you're doing is great, to this is my church. Their language has changed from, that's the church I go to, to this is my church. They've taken ownership of it. I want to invite you today to move from being a spectator to being a builder, to, to get involved and say, I got a heart for this house. I'm, uh, I'm going to just be real with you because sometimes people come up to me and they say, Pastor, I love it. Love what you're doing here. Love this church. It's so great. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love, love, love it. But then I see they're not serving anywhere and I think, how much do you really love it? Because as soon as you don't like something, you're going to leave because you didn't play a part in, in building it. Get, get some skin in the game. M make this your church. And so we know we have a heart for the house because those who had a heart for the house went up and built it. I want to I show you another way that we know that we have a heart for the house. Um, it's in Ezra chapter 2. 
verse 68, Ezra chapter 2, verse 68. It says, when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads and the families uh, of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. Verse 69, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work. Here's, here's how you know you have a heart for the house. Number two, your finances reflect it. Your finances reflect it. If you want to know where your heart lies, just look at where your money flies. Come on. If you want to know where your heart lies, look at where your money flies. Because we put money into things that we care about. And this is actually something Jesus taught. He said it in Matthew 6, 21. He said, uh, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also because our heart is attached to our money. Wherever our money goes, our heart follows. I mean, just think about it. If you spend a bunch of money on some shoes, you all of a sudden care about those shoes now, right? It's like, don't step on my kicks, bro. Back up. Why? Because you got some money invested in them. But after a while, you wear them and the value of those shoes go down. You stop caring about them as much. You walk in the mud and you don't care anymore. Why? Because you're the value is gone. Your money is not there, and so your heart has left it. Wherever your money goes, your heart follows. Sometimes we think it's the opposite. Sometimes we think, well, I'll care about something, and then I'll give to it. Jesus said, no, if you want to care about something, then give to it first, and then your heart will follow. I was talking with Zoe Grant. Um, she's on our VIP team. She serves at the VIP tables. Uh, she also does a lot of the photography for our church. So, so anytime you see pictures, some of them came from her, and she, she really makes us look good as a church. Um, but she told me this. She said, you know, when you talk about wherever your money goes, your heart follows, she said, that's so true. She said, when I started tithing to this church, I started caring way more about it because I'm giving my hard-earned money now to this church, and all of a sudden, my interest in it went up. Like, I cared about it because I was invested in it. See, when you invest in something, you care about it. Wherever our money goes, our heart follows if you want to know if you have a heart for this house, you just got to ask yourself the question, am I returning the tithe? Am I bringing the first 10% of my income back to God? And it's not because the church needs it. It's not because we want something from you. It's because we want something for you. God has called us to return the tithe back to him because for several reasons. One, it produces generosity inside of us. It helps us have a healthy relationship with our money so that we don't worship our money, but we worship God because I'm able to give it back. Um, also, when we do that, when you return the tithe to God, again, you're giving it to God, not to the church. Sometimes we have this misconception that, that the, it, it, people get, get weird when churches start talking about money. It's like, they just want my money. But you don't say that when you go to a restaurant, right? They, the restaurant just wants my money, so I'm not going there. No, you still go there. The shoe store just wants my money. Yeah, but you still go there. Uh, the, we don't just want your money. I don't want something from you. I want something for you. Here's what I want for you. I want for you to experience generosity well up in your life. I want you to experience freedom in your finances. God said, when you return the tithe back to me, I'll bless the rest. When you return the first 10%, the 90% will be blessed by me. I want you to experience that blessing in your life. When we talk about returning the tithe, that's not because we want something from you. It's because we want something for you. And here's the thing. I get it. Like, I know it's difficult sometimes to trust God with that because of how we live and because of our lifestyle. And really just for so many people, we don't always understand how to handle our finances. We don't know how to manage that. 
And that's why as a church, we offer a group called Financial Peace University. Uh, we have groups starting up in January. These are one of the best ways for you to get to know other people and build relationships. But we have a group starting up in January called Financial Peace University. We're going to be uh, promoting them and having sign-ups throughout December. You're going to want to sign up because those groups are going to fill up fast. But when we have Financial Peace University, we offer that because we want to help you get a grasp of your finances. We want to help you budget. We want to help you understand the best ways to get out of debt, how to save, how to invest, how to, how to finally take control of your money. So many people, this is the problem that they have. And we offer that as a church, not because we want something from you, but because we want something for you. We want you to succeed in your finances. And by the way, if you've never taken Financial Peace University, when we offer groups in January, that's the one you should sign up for. Don't sign up for any other group but Financial Peace University. It'll transform your life forever. When my wife and I took that years and years ago, we were able to get a grasp of our finances. We were able to pay off $20,000 in debt uh, in a year and a half because we had a plan. And so we want to help you get free. And so when we talk about this, again, it's not because we want something from you, it's because we want something for you. But you know that you have a heart for the house because your finances reflect it. Because here's the thing, it doesn't take any faith to give God your scraps. It doesn't take any faith to give God what's left over. But it does take faith on your part to say, God, I'm going to trust you with the first 10% of my income. And I'm doing it because I believe the house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations. Some of you today need to take that step of faith and say, God, I'm going to start trusting you with the first 10% because you're not a D-O-G who, do, who gets my scraps, but you're G-O-D who saved my life. And because of that, I'm going to return back to you. Listen. The house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations. You know you have a heart for the house because you're, uh, you're, you're playing your part in building it and in returning the tithe. Now, uh, David said the house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations. I want to show you when it says that he made extensive preparations what that meant. Verse 14 of 1 Chronicles 22. Um, yeah, 1 Chronicles 22. Uh, here's what he says, I have taken great pains to provide for the temple, and we won't have this on the screen for you, but it says, I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord, a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron, too great to be weighed, and wood and stone. David, the extensive preparations he made was he set aside in our equivalent today, $867.5 million dollars for the house of God, because the house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations, and I'm going to do whatever it takes, even make a sacrifice to see it built. Now, uh, David makes these extensive preparations, Solomon builds it, it gets uh, torn down, and then in Ezra we see that uh, the people of Israel come back to start rebuilding it, and they start off really well. They get excited about it, they have provision for it, but then some difficulties happen, they get distracted with their own lives. They get distracted with building their own houses instead of God's house, and then the project ends. So they lay the foundation for it, and then they stop after a while, and a hundred years pass. This is where the book of Haggai comes in. Haggai was a prophet that God sent to the nation of Israel, and he sends them to draw them back to the project, to help them develop a heart for the house. Here's what Haggai says in Haggai 1, uh, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. So they were going to start doing it 100 years before they stopped, and now they're, they're putting it off. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. Verse 9, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. God is telling these people that you've gotten so distracted in building your own house, you've neglected my house. He's telling them that you got so caught up in living your own life that you missed out on the life that I've been calling you to, which is a far better life than you could live on your own. God is is telling them, the reason why things are going the way they are with you is because you've neglected my house. I want to show you this principle, okay? We can't neglect the house of God because the house of God is directly tied to our house. He said, because you've been neglecting my house, that's why you haven't been prospering. Because you've put my house on hold, your house can't grow. Our success, whether or not we're going to prosper in life, is directly tied to if we have a heart for the house or not. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be like the people in Ezra. I don't want to be like the people in Haggai who have great desires and intentions to see the house of God be built into this great, magnificent thing, but then just put it off because I got so busy with my own life. I don't, I don't want to be so distracted with building my own kingdom. That's not going to last. That I neglect the kingdom of God that has eternal impact. I, I don't want to get so sidetracked with living my own life that I miss out on the life that God has called me to. And what it takes to live this kind of life is to develop a heart for the house. I want to introduce you to some people. Over the past 14 months, we've seen 56 people get baptized right here in this house. We've seen 56 people give their lives to Jesus. Some of them have, have moved away. Uh, some of them weren't able to be here today, but I want to show you who they are. If you're one of those 56 people, would you come up to the stage right now? Okay. You should be standing on your feet right now, clapping for these people. Come on. This is what we've seen over the past 14 months of how God has been changing people's lives. Right here. You can take your seat. These are people who, because of this house, discovered Jesus and had their life forever changed. We're able to launch this house because of people who made a sacrifice, because of people who had a heart for the house, because of people who wanted to see people far from God raised to true life. And they gave and they sacrificed 
and they served, and they said, I will do whatever it takes to build this because I want to change people's eternities. Because I believe that the house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nation, and we are not done yet. We still have more people to reach. We still have more people to, to show who, who God is. Be, because this house should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations, we're going to make extensive preparations. You're going to have an opportunity, each and every one of you, all of us. We're going to have an opportunity on December 13th to bring an offering to God. It's an offering that we're calling Even Greater. The reason is because we believe that this house should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations because it was of great magnificence and fame and splendor in these people's lives because it's through this house that they said yes to Jesus. We're doing this. We're giving you that opportunity on December 13th because I believe that God wants to do even greater things in our midst. I believe that God wants to do even greater things in our church. I believe that when we go into 2016, God wants us to reach even more people. And so we're going to receive this offering on December 13th because we're not done yet. Because we still have room to expand. We still have territory to take. This is a movement and we're not done yet. And so on December 13th, I'm going to ask you to bring an offering above and beyond your tithe, an even greater offering. And I started thinking, you know, in light of 1 Chronicles 22.5, David said that the house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations. I believe the same is true for our church. And I just thought, 1 Chronicles 22.5, what if every adult in our church brought $225 on that day in light of 1 Chronicles 22.5? Now, there's nothing special about 225. I, I just think I just want to give you something to aim for. But I just asked, what if every adult in our church brought $225? Our, our kids' ministry has already committed to bring that collectively. So your kids, um, they're being told about this, and, and, and they're like, it's their goal to bring 225 that day. My daughter's three years old. I don't know where she's going to get it from. But, but I just thought, what if everybody brought $225. That would be an even greater offering of $30,000. And I think we can do it. But I think $30,000 might be too small. Because I just believe that the house of God should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in all the nations. I believe God's not done with us yet, and he wants us to reach even more people. And don't you know, to reach people, it takes money. We're bringing this offering to produce generosity within our heart, but we're also bringing this offering so that we can reach more people. But I believe that there are some people here in this church who $225 wouldn't even be a sacrifice for you. You could give $225 and not even feel it. I believe that there are several people in this church who you can add a zero to that number. And on that day, you can bring $2,250 for that even greater offering. I love it that we get a chance to do this. But I believe that maybe for one person, maybe even two, or maybe you know somebody who even adding a zero wouldn't be a sacrifice. You could give it and not miss it. Because you're spending that on Christmas presents. And we're not going to give Uncle Bobby a present and not give Jesus a present. But I believe that there's one, maybe two of you who can add another zero to that. And on December 13th, you can bring $22,500 for the expansion of God's kingdom.
so that we could see more people who are far from him raise the true life so that this stage would be more full. That's why we're doing this. And so on December 13th, we're receiving the even greater offering. And I want to invite you now to begin praying about what you can do, what you can bring. Maybe say, Pastor, $225. I, I can't even imagine doing that. That's so much for me with my situation. I, I just want to ask you to pray to God and say, God, what, what is a sacrifice for me? What should I bring? Because everybody's going to bring something on that day. And we're going to receive it so that we can enter into 2016 hitting the ground running. We got a lot of plans for next year of how we're going to reach people, how we're going to see more people, how we're going to pack this place out. And when you give to this offering, it enables us to do that. And so I just want to invite you to prayerfully concern what it is that you're, or consider what you're going to bring, because I believe everybody can bring something. Because we're a church designed to see people far from God raise the true life. We've already seen the impact that we've had, but we're not done. Because God's going to do even greater things in our midst. I want to I wanna close in the same way that I began. I want to ask you, what do you want to be known for in your life? What do you want people to say about you? Do you want people to say he really cared about his car? She loved her shoe collection. I mean, she had pumps, flats, heels. It was extensive. Do you want people to say he rewrote a systems manual on how to operate a piece of machinery? Or do you want people to say about you? They had a heart for the house of God. And they showed it by how they lived. They showed it by building. They showed it by giving sacrificially. And because they had a heart for the house of God, they changed people's eternities. I want there to be some people at your funeral who stand up in front of everybody and say, the reason why I'm here today is because this person cared about the house of God. They gave sacrificially. And because of that, that church was put in a position to reach even more people, and I am one of those people. And my life was changed, and my eternity is transformed forever because of the sacrifice they made. What do you want to be known for? December 13th is your day to show it. December 13th is your day to say, God, would you do even greater things in our midst, and would you use what I'm bringing to do that? In a moment, we're going to... observe communion. We're going to have people on our VIP team come down. They're going to pass out trays, and in those trays are stacks of cups. Uh, There's a cup at the bottom that has a piece of bread in it that represents Jesus' body that was broken for you. There's a cup that's stacked on top of that that has some juice that represents Jesus' blood that was shed for your forgiveness. And every time we take communion, we remember that God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son. God gave his best. God gave his all so that we could have life. December 13th, you have an opportunity to give so that others can have life. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for the testimony that we see on this stage. Every person here is a life that's been changed because of the power of your gospel because of what you're doing in this house. God, let us take pride in what you're doing in this house. Let us get involved and play a part in building it. Let us sacrifice. God, on December 13th, we want to bring the biggest offering we've ever brought in our lives. We want it to scare us because it's going to take a tremendous amount of faith for us to trust you in that way. 
God, I just believe that you want to do even greater things in our lives, even greater things in our church, even greater things in the lives of people who are far from you right now, who don't even know you, who don't even know about this church. But because of this offering, we're going to make it so that your house would be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the city of Norfolk, in the lives of our husband and wives and and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and friends. We're going to make it so that this house would be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the state of Virginia and in this country and in the world. December 13th is our time to test our faith. And we want to bring you our best. Thank you for what we've seen as people's lives have been changed so far. We can't wait to see you do even greater things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We pray you were inspired and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, sign up to serve on a team, join a group, or just find out more information on The Rising, visit us at wearetherising.com.